0: Hey there, friends. Lisa Keefoffer here, host of this podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. If you're one of my regular listeners, I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sending me notes about the impact the show is making in your lives. Of course, I truly appreciate the reviews you leave on Apple Podcasts, and I love it when you send me selfies after you've picked up your very own GSBT. But if you're new to the show, you might be wondering why I created a show like this. A show that explores the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives. I totally get that. When I was launching the show in 2019, more than a few people in my life said, Wait, you're going to do what? But since you're tuning in, I don't think you'll be surprised to know that it has really resonated with people. 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I'm no exception with the most significant loss being my husband, Eric, in 2011. But I also spent a career as a social worker, as a narrative therapist, and now as founder of Reimagining Grief. And I just keep seeing how grief-avoidant we were and are, and the harm that's causing, well, all of us. So through this show and through my work at Reimagining Grief, I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief, one conversation at a time. So, as I was beginning to wrap up Season 2 of this show, I was reflecting on all the incredible wisdom each of my guests have brought throughout the year. From the tender reminder from actress and mother Amber Smith to live like Riv in the wake of her son Rivers Drowning, to the wisdom thought leader and creator of Death Over Dinner Michael Hebb offered about the importance of having conversations about what you want for yourself and your loved ones in those final days, to the truth bombs about widowhood wonderfully wise and witty author Leslie Streeter shared with us, to the incredible insights the other 14 guests shared this season. Through it all, I've learned so much, and I hope you have too. Yet. I knew the season wasn't ready to be over because something was missing and that something was you. Through my work at Reimagining Grief and the show, together we have built an incredible community of grievers and grief supporters. Though I do my best to address your questions in our individual grief sessions, in my daily writing, in my media appearances, and even through the selection of guests I have on the show, I had a hunch I was missing some important questions, and I was right. I put out a call through my newsletter at Reimagining Grief and on Instagram for unanswered questions, and you all came through. I am so incredibly moved by the flood of DMs, comments, and emails I received from so many of you. I take seriously the vulnerability it took you to ask the questions, and I'm going to do my best to answer them and hope in doing so, I'll be helping other grievers just like you. While I may not be able to answer all the questions or in full because the number of responses was tremendous, I'll do my best. Also, just a quick note please know these are just reflections. Please don't consider these diagnoses, clinical answers, or even medical advice, as I'm not qualified to diagnose your situation. If you're concerned about your physical, emotional, mental health, or safety, I absolutely encourage you to seek professional medical attention and intervention. So here's a metaphor about grief that I developed that I think could be really helpful for you. In our lives, we have millions and millions of experiences. And we begin to form our identity by the stories we tell of those experiences, and the stories others tell about our own experiences. This includes what we imagine possible for ourselves and our dreams. So when we face a death loss or a chronic illness or injury, the ending of a relationship, the ending of a future dream, a layoff, or I don't know, a global pandemic. It's akin to the manuscript of our lives being torn to shreds and handed back to us with no instructions on how to rewrite or live into our lives. So the work of grief is slowly rewriting and living into this reimagined version of our lives. This metaphor is, I hope, helpful to you in helping you come to terms with why the grief experience can feel so confusing, can make you feel so lost, can feel overwhelming. It's because we don't have that manuscript there in front of us and we're having to sort of make it up as we go along. I hope that metaphor allows you to see all the different ways in which your grief experiences are impacting your lives. I also hope it's a helpful context for today's conversation. So one of the very first questions I got was from Stephanie R. And she asked, how do I find a good grief counselor? She mentioned that she's tried a few people and isn't just just not finding the right fit. And here's the good news, bad news of that. Anytime you go to see a helping professional, a traditional therapist, a grief guide like myself, or some other provider, it's about fit and it's about style. And so part of what I invite you to do is to think a little bit about what you need. What are your expectations? Have you been in traditional therapy before? What was helpful and what wasn't? Do you like someone who gives you practical advice and homework? Or do you just need to be seen and held in the pain, in the frustration, in the sorrow, whatever is going on for you and your grief? And the truth is to remember, there's no right answer. But if you can do a little exploration, you can look, ask friends for reviews. Of course, I'll throw myself out there as someone who offers support But that means you might approach some of these conversations almost like an interview. So asking the person, maybe they describe it on their website, or maybe they offer you a free 15-minute consultation, like many of us do, and ask them about what their style is. What is their approach? Bottom line, though, I would say one thing to think about is, um, I think if you're looking for somebody to explore grief with you, that's a key thing you want to look for, not every practitioner, whether it's a psychotherapist, a social worker, et cetera, gets trained specifically around issues of grief. I personally think that um, seeing a provider who lists that and who maybe even discloses a little bit like I do that they have experienced their own grief can be really helpful. Just remember, there's no one right answer. But part of it is starting with knowing what is it that you're looking for, so that you can Do the research and ask the questions. And don't be afraid if after a few sessions, if you don't feel the fit is right, take care of yourself. Say, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to look for somebody else. You don't owe anybody else your time. This is your time to take care of yourself, to feel held and safe and supported. Well, Stephanie R., I hope that answered your question a little bit. And for those of you who are looking for support, please take that to heart. So next, I want to talk about dating in widowhood. Betty F. asked me this question, although lots of other people chimed in. Or dating in, if you are a widower, widowhood, or after really any kind of loss, to be honest. So a lot of folks said um, they're really struggling to date even after a year later, after the death of one of their parents. And the truth is, it's a journey, just like dating is, frankly, any time in our lives. One of the things that I've heard uh, folks share with me over time, and this is something I certainly experienced myself when I first started dating um, more than a year after my husband died, is take it slow and take it easy. Your primary responsibility is to care for and nurture your heart, to take care of your physical body, your emotional body, your psychological body. For me, it's definitely been an interesting journey. And for many widows who are widowers who have young kids, there's an extra layer of complication. Of course, having to find a babysitter. I can't tell you how many times I had to find a babysitter to go out on a date, which comes with its own layers of guilt and parental guilt. But whatever is getting in the way for you, take a moment to listen, to talk with friends, to really do some inventory for yourself. Am I really ready? What is it that I'm looking for? Just like we talked about with the therapist. What is it that I'm looking for? Am I looking to just not be lonely? Am I actually ready to be in a relationship, which takes a lot of work, as you all know? And again, not necessarily judging your answers, just being really clear so that you can show up with realistic expectations, both for yourself and the people that you're dating. Actually, you might remember that earlier this season, I had writer and hilarious woman, Leslie Gray Street, or author of Black Widow on the show, and we talked a little bit about this. Actually, we sort of joked that we should do an entire separate episode on the hilarities and pains of dating and widowhood. But the truth is, it's going to be different for everyone. And like I say, really, when about anything in the grief world is to really think about not feeling hurried. So some people get a lot of pressure from family members um, to hurry up. And you've all heard the dreaded, don't worry, you'll fall in love again. I heard that from many people as a young widow. Uh, myself, as I mentioned, Leslie Gray Streeter was on the show. Um, and my friend from Death is Hilarious podcast, Tawny Platus, was on the show too. And we often hear that a lot. But the truth is, we're not worried about it. Usually when people say that, we're not ready. But then the question becomes, why are you starting to date or not starting to date again? And you can only, you're the only one who can answer that question for yourself. Again, you don't need to feel pressured, but if it's been some amount of time and you are starting to wonder, I want to invite you to think about a few things. First, Are you hearing a lot of shoulds in your head? Either I should be ready to date again or I shouldn't date again because that's a betrayal of the person I loved. If you are, if you answered yes to those questions, I want you to hear me. I want you to remember to offer yourself the kind of grace and love and patience you would offer to your best friend. There's no right or wrong here. You've never been in this experience before. You've never this loss before. So whatever the answer is, or whatever the messages that are going on in your head, take a moment, listen inward, listen to what they're telling you, and then take a moment to do some exploring, to sort of do an inventory for yourself. Am I ready? How will I know when I'm ready? What is my goal, short term and long term? And don't be afraid to keep assessing and reassessing. One of the things that you might discover is that you try it for a while because you thought you were ready, and then something happens, and you decide to take a break. So instead of saying, oh my gosh, I failed, I messed up, I thought I was ready, but I wasn't ready, I'm so bad or stupid, or whatever those messages are in your head, can you tell maybe those were some things I thought in my own head? Yes, they were. But I want to offer you the grace and kindness I perhaps didn't offer myself in those early days. Just consider it a learning opportunity. All of these experiences as we navigate and rewrite the story of our lives in the wake of loss are really just learning opportunities for ourselves. So as always, take some time, be kind to your heart, ask yourself the questions about what you are and aren't ready for, take some baby steps, give it a try if you're ready, But remember, only you have the answer to this question for yourself. Betty, I hope that answered your question, or at least began to answer your question. So something else I wanted to talk about, which came up in a lot of different ways, so I'm going to try to answer it sort of broadly. But several of of you listeners from around the world asked me to explore processing anger, just sort of anger, the emotion of anger in general in grief, but also processing um, well, this notion of betrayal, the complication of missing someone and feeling angry about them, either because they treated you in a certain way during their life, or because you learned something, which is something several listeners shared with me, you learned something you didn't know about that person after they died. Again, I want to say to you, I might sound like a broken record today, but I think this is really the deep, meaningful healing work that you might need to hear right now is whatever emotion you're feeling at this moment is okay. I talk all the time about how our culture makes us think that sad is the only acceptable feeling in grief, and I'm just going to say bullshit on that one. And for if you're anything like me, angry might be a An emotion you're not really friends with, that's definitely one of the emotions in my lives um, that I don't enjoy. But to be at the risk of reminding you something you've heard me share before, I want to talk to you just sort of more broadly about our emotional life. Emotions are a neural impulse. They're a response that happens in our body. And then we begin to develop feelings because of the stories we tell. But emotions are are information. They're something that we have to process, listen for, and let pass. But oftentimes we feel like if we open the door to our emotions, they're going to sort of take over and take control. And so we sort of keep the door closed on them. But as you might have already experienced in your grief journey or just other times in your life when you were having big feelings or big emotions is they don't go away. They just kind of loiter on your front porch. So last year I wrote this poem and created this metaphor. Y'all know I love a good metaphor. Um, inviting you to think about your emotions as visitors over for a cup of coffee. So as I said, oftentimes we feel like, ah. Oh, These emotions keep knocking me down, they keep knocking on our door, and if I open the door, they're going to come in, unpack their bags, move in, and I'm always going to feel this way. They're going to just be living in my guest room forever, like that relative who promised they were just over for a weekend and never left. But the truth is, none of our emotions stay. Think about it. Think about the last time you experienced a big burst of joy, and it just filled your heart and your mind. That left. But so did the last time you were in a deep, deep, sobbing, sorrowful mess. It doesn't mean they're gone forever, but all of our emotions pass through. But if we don't let them in the door in the first place, then they tend to loom larger and become more preoccupied in our sort of vision. They cast a shadow on what we can see in the world. And in fact, some of those big strong emotions, including the emotion of anger, keeps us from being able to see other visitors who want to come over for a cup of coffee, like delight or amazement. So next time you're feeling a big wave of emotions, particularly the emotions that you don't want to feel, instead of worrying or kind of clenching tight or keeping the door closed, thinking, Uh, if I let it in, I'm always going to feel this way. Try to remember this conversation we're having. Remember this invitation to invite them in for a cup of coffee. What they have to tell you is just information. It's important for you to hear. Now, remember, sometimes our emotions tell us lies. They tell us stories. So really, you just want to invite them in for that cup of coffee. Listen to what they have to say and then let them be on their way. But back to this question about anger and betrayal. If you hadn't guessed it already, what I'm going to tell you is both of those feelings are totally valid, and actually very relatively common. Sometimes anger comes up not even because we learn things about the person that um, they betrayed us, maybe you found out about an affair after the fact, or something you didn't know about the person. But Anger in general happens for lots of reasons in grief, and it's perfectly normal. I know for me, I was angry at the medical community who didn't diagnose Eric until it was too late, but I was also angry at Eric for leaving me at times, even though of course it wasn't his choice. He died of a massive brain tumor. But there have definitely been moments along these past 10 years where I felt really angry, I also have felt very angry at just people walking about at living their lives, um, doing what they need to do. So take a moment to maybe hold your anger again with that same compassion, that same loving kindness, and just soften to it and maybe just listen. What is it trying to tell you? Sometimes our emotions, particularly our emotions like anger, actually help us crystallize what it is we value. So we're often angry because we feel an injustice, and that injustice points us to a value that we hold deeply. So one way to approach your anger might be to to be curious, once again, to be an explorer, an investigator about what it is that I value in relationships, about myself, about how I show up in the world. And use that exploration or that curiosity to help you continue to ask for what you need to set the boundaries you need and the relationships you have going forward and to step into the values that you believe really align with you. I'm your host, Lisa Keefoffer, and you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Today, I'm responding directly to you. I asked my Reimagining Grief community what questions they had about grief and loss and empathy, and even about me and why I do this work. When we come back, I'm going to be answering your questions about complicated grief, about this thing called grief brain that we all seem to struggle with, yet none of us really understand, about going back to work the challenges we face, the steps we can take to ease our transition, and frankly, a little bit about the culture of most of our workplaces and why I've committed to doing work to shifting company culture. Okay, y'all, I have a truth bomb for you. Are you ready for it? We all need help sometimes, even me. I learned long ago that we all need help sometimes, and that includes those of us who help people for a living. I know for sure that my capacity to show up and hold space and bear witness has grown exponentially because I've been open and vulnerable enough to seek my own help. And while there are a lot of great therapists and grief guides out there, I want to invite you to think about working with me. Based on my decades as a social worker, as a narrative therapist, now as a grief guide, and my own grief experiences, I created a practice that meets you exactly where you are in your grief. I offer my clients a feeling of safety, acknowledgement, and being held in their grief. They gain deep insights into their thoughts, emotions, and even the embodied nature of their grief. I offer a unique set of tools to help you navigate your grief journey, and it all takes place in an intimate and private one-hour video session via Zoom. So that means no matter where you live in the world, I'm here for you. Visit www.reimagininggrief.com forward slash support to learn more. So a number of you wrote to me and asked about complicated grief. You wanted to know, well, what exactly is it, and how will I know if I have it? And I want to preface this discussion or these reflections that I'm about to offer in the context that I do think that there can be real situations in which grief becomes complicated and might need more significant interventions. And I think that because we have such a grief avoidant culture, and that because we haven't really learned to hold space and bear witness for ourselves and others in their deep pain, I think this topic gets brought up more often than it actually exists in people in the world. But having said that, there are are sort of specific criteria that the DSM, the manual clinicians and physicians use, but it can be difficult to discern because so many of the criteria listed are actually totally normal responses to loss. Still, one way to think about it is, um, well, like intensity and time. If the intensity of your grief remains high, and with real honest reflection, you don't see any improvement as the months go by. And I mean up and down, it doesn't have to remember be linear totally in an upward direction. But with honest reflection, if you see no improvement as the months go by and months and months, and you're not sure how else to cope, that could be a sign. When the intensity over time becomes debilitating, or all consuming, it could be considered complicated grief. Another, well, technical diagnosis, I guess, if you will, is also persistent and complex, I think it's called, well, let me think about this. It's persistent complex bereavement disorder, I think is what they call it. But still, seeking grief support is called for but for the majority of us, as I said at the beginning of the show, regardless of whether or not we've met this criteria. Still, if this sounds like you and you haven't done so already, I definitely encourage you to speak with your doctor, with a therapist, or other clinician who specializes in grief to get a proper assessment and the support you need. And for some, I do want to take this moment to say, for some of you, grief can lead to thoughts of suicide. And I do want to take a moment to say, if you're thinking of hurting yourself, please seek immediate treatment. You can always call 911 You can go to your local emergency room or call a local crisis response team. If you're a listener here in the U.S., you can seek 24-7 support through the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. So as I mentioned, so many of you asked me questions one way or the other about grief brain, about memory loss, about the fog of grief wondering when you're going to quote unquote get back to yourself or should you be worried. And again, of course, this isn't medical advice, but I wanted to say directly to all of you who've had this concern, grief brain is totally normal. I'm not sure I've met a single griever who hasn't experienced it. So what is grief brain? Well, some people call it a fog, and I think that's a pretty apt district description because what happens Basically, in a nutshell, is that we go into sort of a stress response because something we love, something has happened that, again, tears our lives apart, shreds the manuscript of our lives. And so our body and our mind and our brain are in a stress response. So that means our body is basically going into sort of a survival mode. And when we're in survival mode, a lot of things happen. Our ability to sleep is diminished because, of course, if you think about it from a Physiological standpoint, you don't want to go to sleep when you're running from a saber toothed tiger. Sometimes we have um, bodily issues with our digestive system. That goes offline again when we're in stress response. But also, so do things like basic memory, both short and long term. Again, this happens for a couple reasons. One, we're in a stress response and you don't need short and long term memory to survive but also because our minds become preoccupied with strong and difficult emotions that are naturally coming as a result of what we've lost, what we're grieving at that moment. The questions come, well, how long will this last? Is it a week or two weeks? Is three months okay? Is six months too long? And like so many things in grief, the good news, bad news is it really depends for some people, depending on the loss, depending on their other capacities, the resources and interventions they have, they might start to see their way clear out of that early fog in one to two to three months. For some people, it lasts more than a year. I'll tell you that in some ways, I think mine lasted definitely more than a year. That's just my personal experience. It doesn't mean I wasn't able to function. I was a single parent well, still am a single parent, but I got back to the business of parenting with much help from friends and family. I also returned to work, which we're going to talk about next. But when I look back over time, I recognize the ways in which my brain was not functioning, especially with the problem solving, the memory, all those kind of high functioning, human functioning um, aspects of our brain. It can feel really concerning and disorienting. And I absolutely don't blame you why you're concerned, and why you ask the questions. However, instead of trying to fight against the fact that it happens, and I want to invite you to think about accepting, well, this is my body's way of protecting me, of surviving. And so instead of trying to force yourself to be the person you were before, to have the same responsibilities, to have the same kind of cognitive functioning, how can you offer yourself once again, Grace and patience and kindness. How can you think about setting up systems in your lives that help supplement the lack of memory that you might be having? So that may be putting bills on auto pay, putting sticky notes. I know I had sticky notes all over my house that first year. You might also invite trusted friends or colleagues to help remind you of things and it might also mean that you have to temporarily shift, taking responsibility of for certain things that you aren't capable of managing now and that's the key word now. I know when you're in the midst of the deep grief fog or grief brain, it feels very concerning and like you're gonna always feel this way. but as someone who is further down the road and who has worked with, hundreds and hundreds of people along their grief journey, I promise you that that grief brain and that fog will fade. You just have to have some patience. So in the meantime, instead of expecting yourself to have the sharp memory that you once had, find ways to set up supports and systems in your life that allow you the time your brain and body needs to heal. So this topic of grief brain is particularly important when we think about returning to work. Don't get me started, y'all, on our culture here in the U.S. anyways, although lots of capitalistic countries have a lot of problematic cultures and policies around returning to work. But some of the questions that I got really that just wasn't so much about complaining about employers demanding that you return to work, uh, although mine did. I'll tell you that story real quick. But I think the bigger question for a lot of people, and this could be a question you have too, is when should I return to work? When is it okay to return to work? Should I return full-time or part-time if I have a choice? What are my options and how will I know when the right thing is? And again, to sound like a broken record, the truth is it's different for everyone. For some people, they find returning to work as very comforting, having the routine and the familiarity. Maybe you're close with your colleagues or you find your work rewarding and a good distraction. If that's the case, it could be that returning to work sooner than later is the right option for you. For other people, returning to work feels too difficult It could be again back to this conversation because maybe your brain isn't working the way that it was, or just because your emotions are quite intense and um, unpredictable, and you don't feel like you're able to give your job the focus and the dedication that you can. Now, having said all that, many, if not most of us, don't really have an option about not returning to work. I was a single mom, I was a social worker. There was no other income coming in, and I really didn't have a choice. So I did return to work. However, after two weeks, after my husband died, however, I did work with my bosses and even with the clients that I saw to adapt my schedule to the best that I could where it still brought in income and where I was still doing good work. Whether you have a choice to work part-time, work uh, off-site, to work flex hours or not, think about that, I would encourage you to not be afraid to ask your supervisor or manager what kind of options you can create for yourself. The other thing I want to remind you, and I'm mostly reminding employers, if you're an employer who's listening right now, if you run a company, you're a leader or a manager, I do so much work going into companies to help them think about why empathy and grief-smart culture is so important in the workplace. And one of the tips that I always say is besides obviously offering paid bereavement leave, we need to think about the fact that even when people are quote unquote ready to come back to work, that grief brain is in action and that there's going to be fluctuations in people's capacity to handle their emotions. So when you return to work, whether you have a close colleague that you work with or your leader or you're part of a team, thinking about can you set up check-ins in your workplace to help you um, make sure that you attended to the details to the level that you did before? Do you have someone you can job share with or tap in or tap out if you're having a hard time in the meeting? What kind of systems and supports can you work with your company to create ahead of time in advance of working to help make you the most efficient employee you can be while you're navigating your grief? And just like I said when we were talking about returning to dating in the wake of grief, I'll say the same thing about work. Again, the caveat of whether or not you can afford it notwithstanding, don't be surprised if you return to work because you think you're ready and then something comes up and you're not. Instead of judging yourself or blaming yourself or criticizing yourself for not knowing or not being ready, have some grace and patience. Use it as a learning opportunity. What did I discover about returning to work? Was it certain aspects of my work that I couldn't handle? Was it the number of hours? What was it? And use that information to help you figure out what your next steps are. And by all means, please, please, please don't be a grief thief to yourself. Do you know what a grief thief is? This is what I call it when we either compare ourselves or other compare our grief to theirs. So if you're saying, well, how come I can't return to work when somebody else in my life who's grieving returned to work? What's wrong with me? Please don't do that to yourself. And by all means, don't do that to somebody else. Remember, each of our grief experiences are different from one another. Our grief styles, what works for one person might not work for another. Instead of being judgmental, as the theme goes through this conversation and all the work I do Instead of making assumptions and about the beliefs that other people have, look inward and figure out what is it that you need to support you, and the answers to those questions might look very different and might result in a really different back-to-work schedule. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Keefoffer, and in today's episode, I'm answering some listener-submitted questions as we wrap up Season 2 of this show. When we come back, I'm going to explore quite a few topics. These were questions that more than one listener asked me because I think they really speak to some of the universal truths of grief. First, I'm going to explore what it means to grieve for a friend and other losses that people tend to invalidate or diminish. That's brought to you by Sierra, all the way from Ireland. Ruth E. asked me to explore the nature of ambiguous loss when you're facing someone who has had a traumatic brain injury, Alzheimer's, or some other illness that has them physically present, but maybe psychologically, emotionally, or mentally distant. I'm also going to talk about secondary losses, including family members, because of the different grieving styles and our inability sometimes to hold space for one another in our deep pain. Thanks to Dorothy H. for that question. Finally, I'm going to explore how to handle those quote-unquote innocent questions. You know the ones. The ones that feel like a punch in the gut, like how many children do you have or what does your husband do? Thanks to Chris Kay for bringing us that question. up to this summer? Me? Well, I'm glad you asked. Besides getting ready to send my only child off to college, how on earth is she old enough to do that? I'm going to be seeing my grief guide clients, leading guided meditations, consulting with companies about how to create grief smart cultures. I'm also going to be interviewing more guests for season three, so don't worry there. I'm also excited to share that I'm going to be teaching a loss and grief course to undergraduate social workers at the University of Texas at Austin, Hook'em Horns. And most important for you to know is I'm going to be finishing writing the book I've been telling you about this season, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, Don't Worry, I Got Your Back. It's a compilation of all the years of insights, wisdom, and metaphors I found most useful so that you can feel seen and held in your grief. Plus, it will be in bite-size, easy-to-digest doses because I know the last thing I wanted to do in my early grief was read a dense book. If you want the latest about the book and all things GSB, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter at www.reimagininggrief.com forward slash newsletter. Okay, well, as promised, I wanted to touch on some really common questions and common experiences that people face. So what does it mean to grieve a friend? And why do we have such a hard time giving ourselves permission to grieve fully and publicly friends? Well, this goes back to our grief avoidant culture and some of the beliefs and assumptions that we have about who and what we are allowed to grieve and for how long. And so Ciara in Ireland said that she is grieving a friend and sometimes feels like other people maybe don't have patience for her grief because they were, quote, unquote, just a friend. And whether this has been your experience about a friend, I hear this all the time about pet loss, I'm approaching the one-year anniversary of losing my rescue dog, Brutus, and I'm pretty wrecked by it, I have to share I want to remind you that your grief is yours. You don't need other people's permission, and you don't owe other people an explanation. And while I have deep understanding and compassion for Sierra for asking this question, and I recognize that we live in a world where other people have expectations of us and share their thoughts, sometimes without our permission, about how we should or shouldn't be living our lives, particularly when it comes to grief. The reminder is that we can't control other people's beliefs or expectations. All we can do is listen inward and be kind and compassionate to ourselves. And so if you're grieving someone or something or a pet that you are concerned other people don't, I don't know, validate or believe you should be, Stop investing so much time outward into trying to convince others and just listen inward. What is it that your emotions are telling you? What is it that you are feeling and experiencing? And really spend your energy on what can you do to take care and to nurture your mind and your body and your heart. So another common question that has come up is this notion of ambiguous loss. And we're going to talk a lot about this actually next season with one of my guests. I've already recorded a conversation for season three. But for today, I just wanted to remind you a little bit about what ambiguous loss is and why it can be so tricky. Ambiguous loss is any kind of loss where it's not so obvious as in the incident of a death. So ambiguous loss happens sometimes when we face a a loved one who is maybe into drug addiction or alcoholism, who is, as one of the question askers Ruth asked, has someone in their life who has a traumatic brain injury. It can happen with Alzheimer's or dementia. The um, term was actually coined back in the day when we were thinking about vets who did not return from war, but we weren't certain whether they were dead. Ambiguous loss can be really complicated because there isn't such definition and certainty. We're not, we are have sort of a vagueness in this idea, frankly, this sort of illusion of closure because something or someone is still present in some way, but it's not the way it was. I'm going to share something with you. I'm not sure I've ever shared on the air or even in my writing before, but I definitely experience ambiguous loss. And in some ways, it is not to compare different kinds of grief, but it can be really devastating and confusing. And so if you're experiencing it, my heart is with you. So for the year before my husband died, he was acting significantly different. I think I mentioned at the top of the show, we were seeking medical support and being told nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong, except who he was as a person was changing dramatically to the point where things became really scary in our household. And what I experienced now in retrospect was a series of ambiguous loss as the Eric that I knew and loved was changing and disappearing right in front of me, with no explanation again because there was no diagnosis, even though his body and this person was standing right there. So if you've never identified your loss as ambiguous loss, or you have either way, I wanted this conversation to remind you that it's actually quite common that, yes, it can feel complicated because it invites us to hold more than one thing to be true, And so this is definitely an area of loss where I encourage you to find a support system in your life. It could be people who are going through similar experiences. So if you have someone in your life who has a traumatic brain injury, joining a support group with other caretakers or care providers might be a great way of supporting you. And of course, seeing a professional, whether it's a counselor or a grief guide, but somebody who really understands the particular uniqueness of ambiguous loss. Now to Dorothy H. and so many others' questions about how do we deal with secondary losses. So we all know the big loss that we face when we lose a loved one or we're laid off or we're divorced or whatever our sort of grief event or grief experience is. But in some ways secondary losses, not unlike ambiguous loss, are the kind of unsuspecting and surprising and in some ways hurtful losses. Sometimes they are practical things like then we lose our job maybe our home, we lose access to certain places or spaces. But sometimes we end up losing friendships and family relationships. That can happen for lots of reasons. Oftentimes we lose friendships because our friends don't know how to show up for us in our pain. And sometimes because we get very clear in the process of navigating our own grief that those friends aren't able to show us and evolve with us in as we grow. The particular question that I'm thinking of came from someone who was feeling particularly devastated over the secondary losses because it felt, in this moment anyways, that her family was falling apart. The family members are experiencing different grieving styles, and that happens so often. And so often, our tenuous relationships or the relationships that we have pre-loss only become amplified in grief. And so to think for a moment, is this just a continuation of the kinds of relationships we had previous, or is this particularly new and different? And if it's particularly new and different, then you might have a little more patience and space and grace to say, you know what, we're all doing the best that we can right now, even though our grieving styles are really competing with each other and sometimes inflicting harm. It's, this isn't to make light or minimize the loss, the secondary loss that you're experiencing now. But what I do want to remind so many of you is sometimes these secondary losses are temporary. Sometimes people have to drift away from us or we have to drift away from them as we do the healing work of grief. And it's only when we have some space, when, when the fog brain, you know, when the um, grief brain lifts And we have done some of our own healing that we can find our way back to each other. So not that you might not already know that this loss is permanent, but perhaps I want to invite you to think about whether this is just a temporary situation and whether there's anything you really can or want to do about it now. It might be that you're tempted to spend energy trying to fix these secondary losses when really you should be attending to the healing work of your own heart of your own body, and your own mind. And finally, just for this episode, finally, anyways, I want to talk about those punch-in-the-gut questions. You know the questions I'm talking about. The questions if you've lost a child, which is, do you have any children or how many children do you have? Or for me, I had people ask me, where's your husband? What does your husband do? Because I wouldn't take off my wedding ring for the first about year and a half or where is your husband today you might somebody might ask you where your mother or your father lives etc and let's face it it's a punch in the gut there's nothing you can do we know in our minds intellectually that nobody meant us any harm by those questions nevertheless it still feels like a lot. And particularly for those of you who are newly grieving and now we're navigating back in the world, for those of us who've been homebound during the pandemic, you might be facing these questions more and more. And I think Chris Kay asked this question in particular because she was thinking about what is her responsibility or how might she start to answer these questions. And like always, the answer is depends. You really need to think about a couple of things in my mind. One is, what kind of emotional space are you in that day? Did you get good sleep? Are you feeling positive? Are you feeling worn out? That's just one indicator of how you might choose to answer or not answer that question. The second is, who is the person who's asking the question? Is it somebody you have a deep relationship with? Is it somebody at the checkout person at the store? Is this a colleague or boss at work? Um, That might be, change how or when or to what detail you answer the question. But the biggest reminder to you is you don't owe anybody information. So you have to look inward in each moment, and you might think of practicing some answers. So I know people who've lost children who just say three And one's in heaven, if you believe in heaven or use that language. Some people just say three, even if one of them has passed. And some people say two and choose not to even mention it. Or some people say, let's go back to this example, three, but my son Joe passed away when he was two. I'm just making up that example. Again, do you want to tell the grocery store clerk that? Maybe or maybe not. You can also just say, not answer the question. By the way, uh, this time in your life, particularly in early grief, is an invitation for you to really hold your own healing and your own wellness um, to yourself. So if somebody asks you a question and you don't even want to come up with any answer, you don't have to come up with an answer. Pretend you didn't hear them and go on to the next thing. Really remembering that you are trying to rebuild a story of your life. And what, how you answer the question early on might not be how the question, you answer the question later on. Another aspect to this question that somebody asked me as we close, I want to talk about, which is feeling like the, how they answer the question is somehow a reflection about how much they love or loved the person that they're talking about. And I want to remind you that no one is questioning your love your commitment to carrying that person's memory forward. You know how much you love them, how much you miss them, and how much they touched your lives and you carry them forward. So however you choose to answer those punch punch in the gut questions are totally up to you. And don't invite in those shoulds or shouldn't stories that come in your head. Don't allow it to I don't know, get twisted and have you think that you're somehow not doing them justice. Whatever you need to do in answering those questions to take care of yourself is exactly the right thing to do for you in the moment. I wanted to spend a few minutes giving you a preview of season three, including some exciting ways you can get involved. First, I had the chance to travel to California already, where I had the privilege of interviewing my dear friend, John A. Powell. John is an internationally recognized expert in the areas of civil rights, civil liberties, structural racism, and democracy. John is the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley, And among other things, we explored the connections between the universal experiences of grief and their relationship to belonging. I was moved by my conversation with Mindy Corcoran, author of Healing the Shattered Soul, who explored her journey to forgiveness in the wake of the murder of her son and father in 2014 by a white supremacist at a Jewish community center in Kansas City. I sat down this week with Dr. Alan Cole, an esteemed professor of social work at the University of Texas at Austin, a clinician, author of several books that touch on grief and mourning. What moved me most about our recent conversation was the wisdom he shared about what he's learned about grief and vulnerability in the wake of his own diagnosis of early-onset Parkinson's disease nearly five years ago. Elise Kennedy, a trauma-informed clinician, will be joining me to explore the relationship between grief and trauma, and how why interventions like EMDR are a critical component for grievers with a trauma history. Plus, I have so many more conversations queued up, and I can't wait to bring them to you. Thank you again to every single one of you who submitted a question for today's episode. While this is officially the end of season two, it isn't the end of our conversations. In addition to bringing you more compelling episodes next season, I'm committed to answering more of your questions. You can follow me on social media at Reimagining Grief for daily doses of wisdom and more. But if you'd like a chance to join me for a few live Q&As via Zoom and support this podcast, I want to invite you to join the GSB Podcast Fan Club. Your financial support will help me to continue to produce the quality show you've come to love. Plus, you'll get to join me and other listeners from around the world for some open, candid, and honest live Q&A conversations via Zoom throughout the year. You can learn more by visiting www.reimagininggrief.com forward slash GSB fan club. Don't worry, I'll drop a link in the show notes for today's episode too. We will be back this fall, 2021, with some more incredible guests and conversations. And like I said, I can't wait for you to hear them. I want to thank Gile Smith of Alafia Sounds for once again creating the music for the show this season. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. And until next season, I see you, I hear you, and... I'm holding you in my heart.